Welcome to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast, all about real estate investing in the Calgary market. Today's show is sponsored by Mikasa Home Inspections, Calgary's top-rated home inspection company. Mikasa understands that the highest quality of service is essential, so make sure to call Mikasa before your next real estate deal. And now your host, Corey Peckford. Hey guys, on today's podcast, I had the pleasure of speaking with Keaton Kirkwood of KB Mortgage Group. Keaton is a seasoned investment-focused mortgage broker. One of the things you'll quickly be able to tell about Keaton in this podcast is that he has in-depth knowledge. So not only about the mortgage broking topics, but also of topics like structuring your business as a corporation versus sole proprietorship. So there's a lot of great information shared in this podcast, and I'll definitely be having Keaton on again in the near future to unpack this myth maneuver. Plus, we're going to dive into more detail about how he's made changes to his corporate structure. I think you're really going to find a lot of value in this podcast and enjoy listening to it. Hi, morning, Keaton. just want to welcome you to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. Uh, how's it going this morning? Not too bad. Just on the tail end of a cold. You're always having little kids. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely going around. I'm feeling something myself. Can we start off with, can you just tell us about yourself and how you got into mortgage broking? Sure. So uh, I lived and worked in Alberta and spring of 2014, I just had enough. So I moved to BC, Vancouver to be specific, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I got into sales and I figured, hey, what better way to learn sales than a car dealership? It's, you know, a somewhat important transaction. You know, if you scare someone away or say the wrong thing, it's not the end of the world. You talk to a lot of people and I kept selling cars to realtors <laughs> and I kept looking into real estate and being a realtor just was not the right fit for me, but I knew it was almost the right fit. And then one day I was just kept doing research, was looking at insurance and all different professions and I came across Mortgage Broker and then instantly Colin Bruce, Mortgage Mentors popped into my head and I was like, hey, I've heard those ads and did some research, called my best friend and said, hey, do you know any mortgage brokers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. there's someone we met a while back. I'll introduce you. I start looking at ads because I'm impatient. I think I'm a lot like you, Corey, I'm a little bit of a squirrel and I wasn't happy with just that. So started looking at ads, found one that was clearly written for some younger people and I applied. Then I looked up the team because I wasn't done there. And I see this guy runs a team, looks younger. And I see the underwriter call my best friend. Hey, what's the name of that person you're going to connect me with? It was the same person. So I literally stumbled onto the person I was being introduced to, applied to the ad they had and got interviewed. That was great. Called the person who I know. Hey, do you think I'll get it? And she wasn't the one that interviewed me. She was kind of like the underwriter. And uh, she's like, well, I don't think so. I was crushed. I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> and she's like, well, you were the only one who isn't licensed. And I connected a couple other people and I'm paraphrasing roughly, but she'd introduced other people and then had their mortgage license. I was like, oh, damn. And uh, long story short, I got a call a couple of days later. The guy decided to offer me a position. He was the one that I hired, apparently, because I had a little bit of a sales background and worked on a team for about five years. November 2019 broke off with my business partner. We started up our own team, just the two of us. We won Rookie of the Year for Dominion Lending Centers across Canada, and we hit top 2% of brokers our second year, and it's been a bit of a uh, rocket-powered roller coaster. But... Wow, that's amazing. And then how did you end up in Edmonton? How did you get back in Alberta? <laughs> Housing prices. So I had the fortune to fall in love with a girl who loves horses. And ever since she was like 15, 16, worked a couple different jobs, self-funded horses her whole life. But horses mean no condos, no townhomes. Mm -hmm. So we were looking at houses in Greater Vancouver. We were looking at Abbotsford, Chilliwack. At the time, it was like $1.2 million for a teardown house on a postage stamp in Chilliwack. <laughs> and about a year and a half ago, I while we were looking, I said, what about this? And I showed her an acreage in Alberta. She basically saw like 20 acres, 300 grand, game over. Once Pandora's box was open, there was no going back. And eventually in May, we ended up moving just outside of Edmonton. We got a house and an acreage for the price of a one-bedroom condo in Vancouver. <laughs> oh, that totally makes sense. Lifestyle, right? So a big part of where you live is what kind of lifestyle can you have? I'm hitting that like kids, dogs, cats, stability stage of my life. So 
things are getting uh, more and more exciting by the day, but also more and more boring by the day, depending on how you look at it. So <laughs> I totally get it. So today we're going to talk about structuring, you know, if you're going to either be sole proprietor or you're going to actually structure into having a corporation. And the other thing we're going to dive into is a Smith maneuver. So let's start off by talking about sole proprietorship versus incorporating. Can you kind of go over some benefits of incorporating or also some drawbacks, I guess, would be the opposite of incorporating. So for sure. So I'll start with Corey and I both put a lot of time into understanding real estate and speaking with experts, but neither of us are accountants or lawyers. So everybody should ultimately consult with their accountant or lawyer. And if you need a good one who's focused real estate, let either of us know. So there's the disclaimer. Don't just go do this based on our conversation. For sure. Um, yeah. To start with that, that's perfect. Yeah. So there's pros and cons to both. At the end of the day, being sole proprietor is simpler. It is a solution that has lower cost short term in the sense that as a sole proprietor, your real estate income is going to be taxed at whatever your marginal tax rate is. Whereas when you're incorporated, real estate is considered passive income. So you're going to be taxed at essentially 52%. And there's some tricks you can do to lower that a little bit, but your tax bracket is still going to be quite high. And being incorporated means paying $1,500 to $2,000 a year in accounting fees extra. So higher taxes, higher accounting fees. There is a higher duty to report. If you're incorporated, the CRA treats you the same as if you're Microsoft. You're expected to act professionally and to do things correctly. If you make an error, they will punish you. And they're very heavy handed about it. So you need to do things professionally if you go the corporate route. The benefits, though, of incorporating are you can scale your real estate portfolio far larger. It opens up some secondary channels like small business financing and commercial lenders prefer it. It protects you from liability. And a corporation is a separate legal person. So it moves everything over to the corporate structure and can have some benefits for estate planning. But that requires many long calls with your accountant and your lawyer. I'll add a drawback that many people don't think of. Let's say you're a realtor and you're incorporated for your business. You get to enjoy the very sexy small business tax bracket. But if you have a real estate portfolio or you start to stack up assets inside a corporate structure, once that income crosses, I think it's fifty dollars to $100,000 is the range where they start to claw back your small business tax bracket year over year. So if you've got a real estate portfolio profiting, let's say $120,000, $130,000 a year, and you're a incorporated realtor or any small business, it could cost you an extra $50,000 of tax or more because you're gonna lose out on your small business tax bracket. And I think that's one of the things that many people are completely oblivious to. So either you have your own business and corporate structure or small business or you plan on incorporating, it's another layer to the planning you should put in. Because even if you don't do it today, maybe you will tomorrow. And this is why I put the emphasis, you really, really want to talk to professionals because your past situation can impact things. Your current situation can impact things and what you plan on doing in the future can impact. And it's important that you take the time to have one or two professionals, generally a planner and an accountant, and that they understand what you're doing and why, because, oh, Corey's incorporated. He's got his real estate in a hold cup. Well, just because the advice is right for him doesn't mean it's right for you, even if your situations are very, very similar. Yeah, that totally makes sense. That's actually such a good point about structuring it outside of your existing corporation, because I've been burned too, where I've made decisions and then go to my accountant and it's like, oh, that's going to cost you, you know, $15,000, $20,000 extra per year because I didn't talk to them up front, right? I didn't actually get their advice up front. Well, and so. It's important to know that these rules, the small business tax bracket particularly, are only a few years old, and it does not matter how you structure your corporation. You can have completely unrelated corporations, but if they're owned by you personally, they look at the whole, I think they call it piercing the corporate veil. So they look at everything you own and control. And often people will get poor advice online and try to solve this by, oh, I'll just own it personally, have it unrelated to my opco or my operating business doesn't work. <laughs> so there are ways around it, but they are expensive. And you start getting into trust structures. And this is where I get nerdy and really excited and a little passionate about how do we, most of us, and I assume you're no different, Corey, are working and investing and building a portfolio 
not so that we can go to the five and a half star hotel in Mexico, but rather so we can build something for our kids. Because I think many of us share concern about the financial future of our parents, the financial future of our kids, and the financial future of ourselves. And at least for myself and a lot of people I work with, we share that. And it's one of the reasons why I get so nerdy and excited and a little bit riled up about these different structures and the drawbacks and pros and cons and everything you can do to structure your taxes is like, hey, building a $9 million real estate portfolio is great. But if the goal is to leave it to your kids and the CRA is going to take half when that happens, it's probably better to build a $6 million real estate portfolio that your kids get 100% of. For sure. Many people yeah. don't know that. They just get so excited about the action taking that they don't worry about optimizing things. And I think part of the problems our industry itself, where people doing the educating are usually the ones collecting the commission checks. And more is better. But I don't really agree with that personally. And that's why I have a slightly different approach. And I have probably different interests than a lot of brokers or realtors. Yeah, that's good. So what advice would you give someone that's starting out and they're not sure about, okay, do I stay a sole proprietorship or do I incorporate? If they're new to real estate investing, like how important is it for them to have that understanding, you know, if they're even going to keep doing the real estate investing before they incorporate? It's tough. It's a bit of a chicken and the egg situation where if you've never bought a rental property before and you don't know if you're going to like it, how do you plan 10 properties ahead how do you know where the end destination is and my best advice and we'll touch on this a little bit later there's something called cash damming and that requires that you own properties personally so what i suggest for many clients dipping a toe is let's plan into this myth maneuver let's plan one to three personally owned investment properties based on the size of the mortgage on your home let's use those as the trial or the probation once we get the one to three properties you like it and you want to keep doing it then we start to seriously pivot to the long-term planning if it's a strict i have no idea and there's no way i can answer this question then we have to go that route there are benefits as well to provinces like alberta where there's no property transfer tax moving your real estate over to a corporate structure is considered a deemed disposition so even if you're selling it to yourself and there's no profit the cra says hey you sold that to another legal entity you owe us tax no good accountant can defer that, but you have to be careful. Things like rent to owns, as an example, are, uh, in my experience, considered inventory, and you can't defer those capital gains, and you can get yourself in big trouble. But accounting advice with your CPA aside, there's certain things that there's no form that you can avoid the taxes with, and one of those is property transfer tax, legal fees, mortgage penalties. They all apply when you move a property from your personal name to corporate structure. So I've had clients that have realize their long-term goal requires a corporate structure they're maxed out in financing and they're like let's just figure out how big the band-aid is let's rip it off you know maybe they own three million dollars of real estate often it's a two three four hundred thousand dollar band-aid they have to rip off keep in mind they're selling to themselves there's no profit there there's no like oh we'll just take it out of the profits they have to come up with that money from somewhere yeah that could hurt for sure. And like you said, like without having that property transfer tax in Alberta, we are at a bit of an advantage, right? So there is some savings there if you do go. There's better markets to learn in, in my opinion. BC and Ontario, as an example, are more advanced markets, even just in the sense of the property transfer tax. It's much more difficult to restructure your portfolio. And I think there's merits to certain markets as a new investor, just because they're more flexible. Yeah, for sure. What are some mistakes that you've seen with, you know, someone comes to you and they're saying, oh, you know, Keaton, I want to get a mortgage. What are some kind of mistakes you're seeing people when they're structuring their portfolio? Well, this is a little bit self-serving, so everyone can take this the way they want. But I recently had a chat with a client, moderately sophisticated individual, had already set up the Smith Maneuver, owned a couple of rental properties. And out of the webinar series that I did on the strategy, they reached out. And they just had a couple questions because they were worried they weren't set up correctly for the strategy. They asked those questions and they mentioned another purchase. And I said, well, hey, would you like me to help you plan this out and, you know, potentially work with me rather than Manulife, who they were currently with? Well, what's the difference? You know, it makes no difference. If I get the mortgage, I get the mortgage. And full disclosure, this is a little self-serving, but I think working with licensed professionals that are fiduciaries, that have the obligation to do what's best for you, and have the experience and the interest to 
learn their industry well, but also learn how real estate investing applies to their industry, not only in the purpose of getting the mortgage today, but how it interacts with all the other professionals, the accountant, the estate planning, the structure of your portfolio to grow and have experienced and solve those problems. I think there's a huge value there. So one of the biggest mistakes that I see people is they look, they say, what are the problems I'm facing today? And that's all they look to solve. I want to buy a rental. How do I get a mortgage? That's all they look at. But they don't work with people. They don't look at what are the estate issues that'll come up in the future? What are the issues for qualifying for properties three, four, five? What are the issues to my structure? At the end of the day, my perspective as a broker is not how do I help you make more money? That's the realtor's job. I find that the realtors are often cheerleaders and they're the ones that get you real excited about how do you make money? That's great. My goal is more of how do I help you boost your returns by minimizing your costs? your taxes, your fees? How do we make it a straighter line to whatever your goal is? Because at the end of the day, you can earn a higher return on your investment without taking on additional risk. You could argue that you're taking on less risk because you're minimizing your costs. And that's how I try to approach things and how I suggest investors do it. Like real estate investing is a business and you have to tackle it like a business. It's cutthroat. Mistakes are unforgiving. There is no, oh, well, CRA, I didn't know this at the time. Siri does not care. For sure. Yeah. And then what about like when you're actually getting approval? So if it's in your personal name versus a corporation, what are some of the benefits of being incorporated versus not? So qualifying for a rental property in a corporate structure is not as hard as it used to be. Almost every bank will do it to some degree or another. But as an example, a common structure for investors to set up is a, what's called a multi-tier corporate structure where you have a holding company that owns a holding company that might own an operating company or that you'll have multiple layers to give you flexibility from a tax and liability perspective. The problem is that most banks on the residential lending side will not lend to multi-tier corporate structures. There's only one bank that I know of that will do it. So I think the biggest takeaway you can get from us chatting today is you need to have the right professionals and you need to connect to them. You need to have an accountant, a financial planner, or an estate planner, and a broker that are working together to not just give you the best mortgage advice, the best tax advice, the best estate advice, but rather the combination that works to achieve your goals because the best tax advice might completely sabotage your ability to get a mortgage. And if you can't get a mortgage, it's for nothing. The best estate advice might cost you a ton of tax today. And it's a balance. So make sure that you've got the right people and they're communicating and giving you the best solution to your problem rather than the best solution to their mission, city accountant or the broker. Yeah, yeah. And then why don't they like to lend to a multi-tier corporation? Like, why is it only one bank? The residential lending channel is designed to help someone buy their first home. Because banking is a business at the end of the day. And it's a struggle to keep clients happy. They've slowly evolved outside of that. They help people buy rentals, for example. They help people buy rentals inside a corporate structure, but it's not their primary goal. And as the complexity rises, the burden to have better qualified staff increases and the cost for lenders to do their due diligence rises. And it gets to a point where maybe they're willing to lose a little bit of money to keep an existing client happy, but there's a certain breaking point where they don't care or they don't have the right staff to measure. And rental pools are an example. Most banks will not touch a rental pool. It's not that it's bad. It's that they lost money on it 12 years ago, 13 years ago. As an industry, they said, we're not doing it. It's not that rental pools are inherently bad. It's just that the due diligence to tell a good one from a bad one is too high for the bank to care. So they just say, we don't do it. And it's the same with the multi-tier corporate structures. There's too many rooms for tomfoolery for a complex investor to deceive or misrepresent things to the bank. And it's too difficult or expensive for the bank to eliminate that. So they simply say, we don't do it. Okay, that's a great answer. So let's say we're going to use you as an example. You know, with the knowledge you have today, you know so much about structuring and mortgage loans, all that kind of stuff. Let's say I you're starting very, out. Very little. No, I would say your knowledge is extensive. Okay, so you're starting out, you're going down the road, you bought two to three properties personally. Let me also paint this in the picture. Your goal as an investor might be to own, say, 15 properties down the road. Not a huge portfolio, but just something that's, you know, a good size and maybe 15 to 20 properties. That's your goal. So how would you go about structuring that? So it depends. 
where are the three properties owned? Do I still have non-tax deductible debt on my home? What is my current financing situation looking like? How much do I have in the way of resources, income, and ability to qualify? As an example, if I only have the money to buy a fourth property, and it's going to take me four years to get the next down payment, I might approach things differently than maybe I've got $400,000 and I think I can buy four properties quickly. But first thing I would do would be, and this is kind of interconnected, but is get the estate planner slash financial planning expert, the mortgage broker who's going to be handling and helping me coordinate the financing, and the accountant who's helping me structure things. Probably pay a couple thousand dollars to pay for everybody's time because accountants and planners don't work for free. And I'm going to take two or three hours and I'm going to have kind of a brainstorming session, fact-finding, soul-searching journey. And we're going to figure out in real time, how should I structure this? What is my goal? What is my timeline? What do I need personally? What am I trying to leave to my kids? What insurance products do I need in place for estate planning? Because once everybody's on the same page, and once we have those objections will come up, the accountant will say, well, this is an issue too. And we understand what we're going to do. Then I can figure out how I'm going to structure things. At the end of the day, if I'm going to be forced to work with one lender with a certain structure, but if it's going to save me a million dollars in tax, you better believe I'm working with that one lender. Whereas if the accountant likes it, but it makes no difference to the estate planning side, and it means my financing is limited, and I'm going to be able to get four or less properties due to that one lender, then, well, sorry, accountant, I'm going to eat the extra 12 grand a year in tax or whatever it may be, or take on the slightly higher degree of liability by having an inferior corporate structure to have better estate planning and growth. But it's impossible to do this well. And my goal is to do it well and do it once. And barring a change to tax law or the estate laws or the financing rules, assuming things stay relatively similar, I want to have a plan that I can build and pay for once and then execute. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to try to like pin you down a little bit. Okay, so there was excellent points you made and obviously it's unique to each person. So let's say you're limited in your funds. You do have restrictions, like you said, you don't have the $400,000 in your bank because you know maybe you're self-employed, so you're not gonna qualify. You don't have that big salary coming in. Any suggestions on how that person could move forward? And uh, I'll, I'll clarify. Let's say that I have the ability to restructure my portfolio in a relatively cost-effective way. So in other words, let's say my rentals are owned in Edmonton, which mine are. I would very likely rip off the Band-Aid, move everything into my corporate structure. I would rather slow down buying the next property by six months and get everything in one place. And the reason for this is that if I own everything corporately, I open up in a very interesting world called small business banking. Small business banking can allow me to put 25% down, qualify with the profits from my corporate structure, have interest-only payments up to 75% loan to value, and have mortgages that do not report to my credit bureau. There's no property limit. I could theoretically buy 50 properties inside this structure and they like Airbnb. They don't have no issue with it. The drawbacks, they use 60 cents on the dollar for personal income. They double hit you with expenses for rentals owned personally. I won't get into the nuances because it's complicated, but they penalize you heavily for personal debts and they do not use the income from real estate properties you're buying until you have a year of history. So it's almost like a commercial residential lender hybrid. Oh, interesting. I would angle in that direction because structuring for that would still have me in a position where I could get traditional residential mortgages. I keep my personal side unencumbered and my personal credit bureau very clean. So if I do want to buy personal properties at a future date, I have that option still. If I qualify for these programs, I'm almost certainly going to qualify for commercial lending as well, which gives me not only a... 10 to 15 property exit strategy, but it also opens up the door if I wanted to buy apartment buildings or build a 200 property portfolio. It is relatively cost-effective, slightly more expensive than residential financing, but only call it 15% more expensive. And I'm not talking 15% higher on the interest rate, but total costs roughly 15% higher, which long-term is very marginal. So that's likely how I would pursue it personally. Okay, perfect. And then how does that differ? Because, you know, I've heard so much about the three-tier corporate structure, right? And you have the property management and the holding company and that kind of thing. So is that structure different than three-tier or is it similar? Can you turn that into a three-tier if you wanted to? So I don't know the specific answer to this. I talked to my accountant to know, can I own my real estate in a corporation I own 100% personally because it leaves the most doors open and it simplifies things. Could I then have a hold co that owns another company if needed that I also own personally? 
And would I be able to move profit back and forth with loans? That's what I would investigate. I don't know the answer, but ultimately it would come to, there's a couple banks that I have in mind that I would do this structure with. They're all major banks. There are credit unions that do it as well. I would have to see in the moment, what's the best combination of tax and state and lending. And I don't know the answer. I'm not quite at that stage personally. I've got a couple investment properties and focusing on the growth of my business. Personally, I'm not quite at the stage where I've gone down this path yet. It's close. We're within probably 18 months. But to give you an idea of where I'm at in my journey, in the next six weeks, I'll probably be spending about $4,000 in consulting with an accountant and a financial planner to answer these questions. So maybe we can touch base in the new year. I'll let you know what I learned. I don't know personally what the ultimate structure will be. I lean towards I would just do it single tier to keep things simple and do a side setup but I'm actively taking measures to find what the answer is. And part of the challenge is the rules for corporate structures have been changing a lot in the last few years. One of the big things that Trudeau's done is really gone after structures and strategies that minimize taxes. The goal is that corporate structures are as expensive as personal ownership or more expensive. They don't want you to have advantages and they're actively closing them out. So at least from a tax perspective, not so much an estate, a liability, or a ability to grow your portfolio perspective. Yeah, that makes sense. For sure. How about we have you back, say, in six months, and then we can kind of dive into what you did with your structure and changes you made, that kind of stuff. That'd be yeah. awesome. Could you talk about, let's say someone with an estate passes away, the benefits of having it incorporated and how that can be passed on to family members? That's a bit of a loaded question. If you build your real estate portfolio in a corporate structure. That's the extent of your estate planning. It is, I don't know if deemed disposition is the right word, but essentially everything you own gets sold and taxed in the eyes of the CRA. So let's say that this individual had a $10 million portfolio inside the corporate structure, $10 million of assets, like positive net worth. The people who inherit it are going to have to pay tax on that $10 million. So there might be a four and a half, five million dollar $5 tax bill the day you die. And if you haven't taken the right steps, often the only solution to solve this is sell at least part of the portfolio. They're going to need to sell enough to pay off debts and have a $4 million profit to pay the taxes. They get to keep what's left. So often we'll see a $10 million portfolio turn into a $2.5 million portfolio real fast. And the problem is, you know, I don't know about you, Corey, but I don't get a lot of choice in when I die. So it could be September in the Alberta market. And I think we know that traditionally things that sell in the winter go for less. It could be during a down market. It could be when there's a change or a flux in lending rules. Maybe my kids can't qualify for my portfolio. Maybe they'll lose all of it because they can't inherit those mortgages. Now, there are strategies you take with certain insurance products, as an example, where you can use a insurance product owned in a corporate structure that grows tax-free. So you could take your profits and put it into a certain insurance product. That insurance product will create a death benefit that grows over time. When that death benefit pays out to my kids, it's tax-free. So I could use that to cover the tax bill as an example. I can also borrow on the value of it. So let's say I have a $10 million portfolio and I want to grow $10 million of coverage. The rules are that the cash value of that product has to equal the death benefit by age 100. So if I've got a $10 million portfolio and I funnel all my profit into this, I can make it so my kids get $10 million tax-free when I pass away. But I can also have the benefit of my company borrowing against that tax-free. So let's say I'm 75 and let's just say for simplicity's sake, there's a $5 million value at that point, cash value. So if I die tomorrow, my kids get 10 million bucks tax-free. but at 75, I've got $5 million of that. I can borrow up to 90% of that tax-free in my corporation. Then I can dividend out to myself. I pay income on that, boo-hoo. And there's a loan on there. Let's say it's a $2.5 million loan. So I get to pull $2.5 million out of this policy I've created. Pay tax on it, but I can live on it. When I pass away, okay, there's $2.5 million loan plus interest. That's got to be paid back. So let's say you owe $3 bucks. Policy pays out that $3 bucks. But what happens is I can move $10 million tax-free outside my corporate structure. So $3 million of the insurance money disappears to pay off the debt that I lived off of. Yay, I got some better retirement. But then I get a credit to move that $3 million that I didn't get as insurance out of the company tax-free. 
So I could move $3 million in real estate as an example. Now I'm being very rough on this. There's all sorts of rules attached to this stuff, but this is a very rough concept. You can ask me if you want connections to the right people. I, at the end of the day, I'm not the expert on this. I view my job as traffic control. My job is to know just enough to identify your problems and tell you who will likely help you solve them. And then yeah. to be, when you're like, hey, Keaton, the accountant and the planner said this, this, and this, it's my job to work through and help you distill that into something that makes sense and help you bring up the questions you have, articulate them in an effective way, go back to the experts and get your questions answered. So I'm a bit of a generalist in that sense, but I make it my job to know just enough to know all the problems you're going to face, or at least <laughs> as many as I reasonably can. For sure. Like that really drives home the point, how important it is to talk to an expert, and especially structuring. If, if your portfolio is going to grow to those kind of numbers, like who wants to pay 50% in taxes, you know, and basically half your portfolio is gone to the government, right? It's the so other problem critical. too is then your kids get a check. And if you've seen any of the stats on lottery winnings, which really I don't think inheritance is all that different. If they inherit a real estate portfolio and you set it up correctly, you've at least got a pretty good chance they're not going to sell the whole bloody thing and go to Vegas and blow it. It's hard to sell real estate. And that's a good thing. Whereas if you don't have the proper planning in place, your whole portfolio gets liquidated, your kids get 1.25 million each, there's a pretty good chance they're going to blow it. There's a reasonable chance, depending on their education and where they're at, that they may invest it very poorly. And I think the more steps and measures we can make to make the time of our passing as simple and as straightforward for our kids as possible, also as efficient, the better. Because the last thing I want is, you know, I pass away and all of a sudden my kids are grieving. And now on top of me passing away, planning a funeral, dealing with my estate, they now have to deal with these complex tax matters. Do we sell? Do we hang on? And as I know that, you know, Corey, real estate for a beginner is not simple. And I'm going to give my kids the problems that come with, let's say, a $10 million portfolio to deal with in a time sensitive manner with no head start. I just don't think it's fair. And it certainly isn't the best way for me to achieve my goals of helping my kids. For sure. Yeah, very well said. So thanks, Keaton, for the great chat so far. Let's shift gears now. We're going to go into the Smith Maneuver. So I did vote into one of your uh, Zoom, how do I put it? Uh, it's one of your informational sessions that you have, right? So I did watch live. Uh, it was great. So I did learn a fair bit about the Smith Maneuver from that. So could you explain to our listeners what the Smith Maneuver is? Sure. So the Smith Maneuver is a tax investment mortgage strategy that is designed to lower the cost of your mortgage and to put you in a better position for retirement. Another way to look at it is the goal is to flow funds as efficiently as possible, to minimize your taxes and interest costs, and to maximize your long-term growth potential of investment. So what does that mean? The actual how do you do it? What is it? is we set up something called a readvanceable mortgage on any real estate asset that has non-tax deductible debt. Typically, that's your primary residence and a second home or vacation property. Those are the two main ones. We make it so that a readvanceable mortgage product, as you pay off your mortgage, every dollar you pay off becomes available on a line of credit that is linked to your property or a home equity line of credit, some will call it. So as your mortgage value or your mortgage amount drops, the limit of this line of credit will grow. What you can do is start funneling money to pay down that non-tax deductible mortgage debt as fast as possible, and then reborrow on the line of credit and use it for down payments on rental properties. You can use it to fund a business. You can put it into a corporate structure. You can use it to invest in the stock market. You can invest in anything with a reasonable expectation of earning income, caveats to this, different investment options cause different problems. It's for Canadians. And if you have citizenship anywhere else in the world, you'll be very, very careful. But the goal is to pay less tax and to save for retirement sooner. And how long has this been around for? Since the 80s. So obviously the CRAs looked at this. Is there anything that comes up with them? Like, is there any sort of, you know, basically if someone does this and they do it incorrectly, what kind of impact or implications could there be? If you do this incorrectly or you just get really unlucky, you will ruin your life. That's, <laughs> that's the reality of it. In the video series that I did, we looked at it objectively. I actually got laughed at because I spent more time focusing on the negatives than the positives. But I think it's important to understand 
the pros and cons of what you do. If you mix tax deductible and non-tax deductible debt, the CRA can just say none of it's deductible. If you invest in certain things that have a return of capital model where they give you your initial investment back tax-free year over year up until a certain point, you can eliminate or erode your tax deductibility. If you invest in certain things that don't meet the CRA's criteria, they can say it's not tax deductible. If you put your money into things that have a partial personal and partial business component, the CRA can blow you up. If you don't keep your records and you can't prove what you did and why you did it, you can get yourself blown up. There are a lot of drawbacks. You can invest in Volkswagen and they go bankrupt tomorrow and you lose all your money and you owe $500,000. There's lots and lots that can go wrong. But if you have the right professionals, a good accountant, a good investment advisor, you get the debt structured correctly, you take a long-term approach and try to keep your risks as low as possible. And you spend the 10 minutes a month it takes to do it correctly, track everything and you have the right people tracking things. You do not make rogue decisions, but rather say, I need to pull money out or I need to change the plan. And you talk to the experts and say, how do we do this safely and correctly? It can be the difference. So I'll give myself as an example. I'm 32, I just turned 32. If I use Smith Maneuver on my home, I owe about $550,000. And if I use two investment properties to cash down, is at an 8% growth, it's expected to be about a $1.5 million difference by the time I'm 60 of new money I've created through tax deductions and getting money invested sooner. So it's not perfect. It's not risk-free, but it's been around for 25, 30 years. It has been audited by the CRA repeatedly, and it is at this point in time, something that if done correctly is allowed, it can change your future in a major way positively or negatively. That's going to be decided based on what happens in the world and how you implement it. But I'm someone that has family members that are getting older that don't have a retirement. I have siblings that I worry about. I have kids that I worry about. And as an investor, my job is not to avoid risk, but rather to mitigate it and to decide what risks are worth taking. And personally, the analysis has made sense in a way that I am taking the risk of the Smith Maneuver. And I'm happy with that risk because it beats some of the other alternatives. Guaranteeing I don't have enough to take care of my kids is not a, something I'm happy with. So it's a strategy that kind of complements other things that I'm doing. And it shouldn't be the only pillar of your investment planning, but rather one of them. Yeah, for sure. And then so if you're always taking that money from that line of credit, you know, you pay down the house that you get the money from the line of credit, you invest it. How does the line of credit ever, you're always going to be carrying that part of the debt, right? So you're never going to pay down that, your house in that, in that way. The Vanilla Smith Maneuver, that's correct. The idea is, let's say, so as of today, line of credit costs roughly 6%. If you're at a 33% tax bracket, it's going to cost you roughly 4% after tax deductions. So the goal is, the only way this makes sense long term, is that if you're investing in something that earns more than 4% on average year over year, let's say really conservatively, you earn 6% as an average. The idea is that if you're making a 2% spread year over year, and you're lowering the cost of your non-tax deductible debt. Because it's important to know, you're gonna pay that interest either way on your mortgage. So why not move it over so it's as effective as possible? But over 20, 30 years, you can earn a two, three, 4% positive spread. The numbers start to get very large. And the idea of having $500,000 of debt when you retire is very scary, but it's important to have it in the context of what if that $500,000 of debt created one and a half million dollars investments? So if you had the choice of going into retirement with whatever your current projection is and no debt on your home or going into retirement with a $500,000 debt and an additional $1.5 million investments, which would you choose? And that's one of the angles. Personally, I'm more about how much action do I need to take? How much investments or portfolio do I need to build? So I'm at the point where with a safe margin of error, I will have what I need in my retirement, be able to achieve my goals. Once that's the case, and I'm on track to have that, my goal is to deleverage and lower my risk as quick as possible within reason. So there are ways you can approach the strategy where you end up retiring with no debt or with less debt. And it's not a one size fits all thing, more of a concept or a strategy or a maneuver that you can do to improve the prospects of your retirement.
Yeah, definitely. And then can you explain the difference? So if someone has a HELOC right now, right? What's the difference between a readvanceable mortgage and a uh, home equity line of credit? So readvanceable mortgage is a container that has typically multiple mortgage and line of credit layers and they're linked. What happens is you get a global limit, typically 80% of the value of your home. And you can use or divide that 80% however you want. Now, obviously, if you owe 79% on your mortgage, only 1% can be a line of credit. But a readvanceable mortgage, as that mortgage drops, and now let's say you owe 60% on your mortgage, well, you would have the other 20% value of your property available in a line of credit. And as the mortgage drops, the size of that line of credit will grow. Whereas a standard line of credit is static. You have $100,000 available in a line of credit. Well, next year, you will have a $100,000 limit on that line of credit. The year after, you will have a $100,000 limit on that line of credit. So the big difference is that a readvanceable product is more flexible and opens up a lot of options, tax strategies, investment strategies that a normal line of credit does not. Like it's not very well known. Like, you know, I've talked to other mortgage brokers in the past and I've never heard about this readvanceable mortgage from any of them. It's complicated. Well, it's not even that complicated. It requires learning. It requires taking time to step away from, let's say as a mortgage broker doing mortgages, and invest in educating yourself on the product and the lender policies. Then once you know that and you learn about the strategy, then you have to educate yourself on the other professionals involved, how it all syncs. You have to learn the pros and cons. And I think this is true of most industries and most professions. A reasonable percentage of people, it's a job. They show up, they try to collect their paycheck and they don't wanna work extra. They're not spending Friday night thinking about how do they do their job better. They're not spending the weekends on learning about how do they do their job better and they just don't grow. And same with the Smith Maneuver. A lot of people say, hey, this is so great. Why have I never heard of it? Well, Corey, you've got an advantage on most, but when's the last time outside of maybe a podcast or a strict professional setting that you were chatting with someone about retirement strategies and tax planning and how do you minimize taxes? Personally, I found it's a very taboo topic in Canada. Yeah, that's true. Are you limited on lenders? So like if I come to you and say, you know, I'd like to get a readvanceable mortgage, do all banks offer them or are you limited? Yes and no. <laughs> most major banks offer the product, but most monoline lenders and credit unions do not. B lenders do not. So of the major banks, they all have some version of a readvancing product. Maybe HSBC does, and I don't know. They're kind of in a weird space, but everybody else does. But not all products are created equally. So... BMO is an example, only allows one mortgage and one line of credit at funding. And earlier I mentioned that one of the biggest mistakes people can make is mixing personal and tax deductible debt together. It opens up a major vulnerability with the CRA. And once you've tainted a line of credit that has investment debt with personal debt, there is no, oh, just separate it. It doesn't work that way. The CRA does not view it that way. So an important thing is to be able to have multiple mortgage and line of credit products. So BMO is an example has strengths but also has weaknesses and that one and one is one of their limits another example is rbc only allows 10 percent prepayment with a readvanceable product once a year on the anniversary date so if you wanted to do a strategy like cash damming as an example now cash damming you have non-deductible debt on your primary residence and let's say you have two investment properties personally owned you can take the gross rental income from your rental properties before you pay for any expenses, you can pay down the non-tax deductible debt on your mortgage. Assuming it's a readvanceable mortgage product, whatever you've paid down becomes available. You can then reborrow whatever you just paid down and pay the mortgage, the property taxes, the property manager, the utilities on that investment property. And that is tax deductible because you're borrowing for investment purposes. You're servicing the expenses of an investment you have. So if someone has $4,000 a month of gross rents and has no positive cash flow, they could still eliminate a $500,000 mortgage and make it fully tax deductible in roughly 10 years with cash down. So that would be considered an accelerator, right? That's okay. one of the accelerators. Now there's drawbacks. Please do not do this just off of what I said. As an example, one of the drawbacks is Scotiabank. Every broker loves to talk about how great Scotiabank is, but their readvancing is slow. It takes 60 to 90 days after you make a prepayment for that readvancement to show up. Now, there's really simple workarounds to that. But if you hear this podcast, you go, oh, I'm going to do that. And you take your rent and you pay down your mortgage on your home. And then you're waiting. You got three days until your mortgage payment on your rentals are due. 
and it's not there. It's not there. It's not <laughs> going to be there. It's going to take yeah. 60 to 90 days to show up. Now, if you have a 120 day head start where you just have, let's say, $2,500 a month in expenses you're going to serve, and you've got $12,000 available in your line of credit, okay, great. You've got almost a five month head start. You're okay. But hey, wait a minute. Have you seen that line of credit increase month over month? Maybe it wasn't set up correctly. They told you it would do it, but it didn't. And there's a lot of little simple checks and balances that we screen for to make sure that things are done correctly and running. But that's just one example of how this concept applies. The important takeaway is the goal is to pay off non-tax deductible debt as fast as possible. And often that involves borrowing to invest. But cash damming is an example, has no investment aspect. It is simply repurposing cash flow and funds to maximize tax deductibility. At the end of the day, you still have the same amount of debt you had before. You've just lowered the cost of it. But there's also situations where maybe the mortgage on your home is 2% interest. You have a fixed. Well, there's no tax bracket in Canada that's going to make a 6% HELOC, tax deductible or not, cheaper than a 2% fixed mortgage. So cash damming today may not make sense for some people. But if you've got a million dollar mortgage at 2% and your renewals in 18 months, it may make sense to get a head start. It's going to take you a long time to convert it. So it may make sense to start cash damming going, you know what, it's going to cost me an extra $700 in the next 18 months, but it's going to speed up. And then I'm going to save $500 a year, every single year for the next 30 years. Well, 500 times 30 is a lot more than 1500 or whatever it may be for the next 18 months. So it's kind of like a car getting in a car and just driving pretty simple. Taking it to the mechanic twice a year when the sticker says you need an oil change, pretty simple making sure you've got insurance on it and that you maintain it, pretty simple. The Smith Maneuver is pretty simple to execute. But unlike a car, the Smith Maneuver has tax implications. It has investment implications, has risks. So I think yeah. it's really important for people to understand how that financial car works. And you can cause an accident just like in a car. I just wanted to talk about, let's say everything's set up, you're investing, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I want take $10,000 out to go on that family vacation. If you touch that, can you just talk about that a little bit? If you touch any of that pre-advanceable mortgage personally? Uh, if you only have one line of credit and you borrow it to invest, thou shalt not use investment line of credit for personal use. The simple solution is I'll set up a lot of my clients if they have the room with two lines of credit. Say, hey, Corey, what's the most you ever think you borrow to spend on your own home Jet skis, quad, boats, travel, anything personal. And maybe say, you know what? I hate borrowing for personal use. 25 grand, worst case. Maybe I need a new roof and whatever. Great. We'll set you up with a $25,000 line of credit that doesn't re-advance and whatever else you can get in a re-advancing line of credit. Maybe even we'll talk you through labeling the accounts online. Personal use line of credit, investment use line of credit. Solves the problem. Smart. Yeah, that's the way to do it for sure. Well, Keaton, this has been a fantastic discussion. Our listeners, I'm sure they're going to reach out to you. You just have a wealth of knowledge. Yeah, it's just even for myself, I'll go back and re-listen to this one because <laughs> you just like poured out so much information. It was awesome. I'll have to have you back on again. I'm going to just hit you with a few quick response questions. So what's an app or a software you use in your business that you couldn't live without? I would say this is on the investor side, something called Property Log propertylog.ca was actually created by someone who works for a credit union in BC and them and their spouse started trying to solve some problems for real estate investors. And they built out this amazing software. That's almost a bookkeeping software. It tracks all your tenant correspondence. You can upload all your documents. It can streamline giving your account the information. It lets you stress test your portfolio based on certain scenarios in real time. You can track the performance of everything. It has like a property marketplace for off-market deals. It's amazing. There's a Swiss army knife of a spreadsheet that's basically an app, so property log. That's on the investor side. On the broker side, I would say two things. One is Finmo, which uh, DLC doesn't like so much, I believe, at least not for submission. But Finmo is great. It basically, Scott and I always say that we would need to have a documents person if we did not have Finmo. For a couple hundred bucks a month, we have a portal that does applications and does all the documents. So if you're in the business world and you're a broker, Finmo. And then the last one is a exceptional CRM, which I think applies to any business owner, anyone in real estate, anyone who's even an active working partner. And we use ActiveCampaign. So 
there's the three depending that's, on who's listening. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. And how about a favorite book? What's one of your favorite books? Uh, ooh, that's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> I've been reading a lot lately. So like, I think Think and Grow Rich is a great foundational one for somebody who's trying to think of that long-term vision. So I'll go with that one overused, yep. but if you're in the early stages and you don't know what you're doing, I think it's a book that will pay dividends through every stage of your life. For sure. And then what activities do you like doing? Do you do horse riding as well? What kind of stuff do you do awesome. outside of that? I've been bucked off a horse a few times. Jiu-jitsu is something that I really enjoyed. I have bad anxiety and I'm a little bit of an overthinker. When someone is attempting to strangle me, I'm <laughs> in my happy place. And my mind yeah. is strictly on don't get strangled. And I'm not worried about the news and the stock market and everything else going on in the world. And that's my kind of happy place, believe it or not. This Brazilian jiu-jitsu, yeah. of course, right? Yeah, for sure. I did it for about five years. I want to get back into it, actually. Yeah, it's definitely a great outlet. Community, yeah, too. 65-year-old guy kicking the 20-year-old's asses. It's uh, <laughs> You're like, okay, this is something that will pay dividends as I get older. It's the real deal, for sure. And then our listeners that want to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to find you online, your website, that kind of stuff? Uh, you can either find me Keaton Kirkwood on Facebook. Great way to connect with me, but please send me a message before you add me. Otherwise, you'll just get lost in the abyss. www.kbmortgages.ca is our website. And then uh, email is probably the best way to reach me business-wise. Keaton, K-E-A-T-O-N, at K-B, Kilo Bravo, mortgages with an S.ca. Okay. And are you on Instagram as well? Uh, I am. I don't use it a whole lot. It's for them young folk. But uh, <laughs> I'm on Instagram. I don't even know what my handle is. Okay. Google Keaton Kirkwood. You'll find me. Okay. Perfect. Instagram, Keaton Kirkwood. Yeah, you bet. Well, thanks so much for all the great information and our talk today. Well, I appreciate it, man. One of these days, maybe we'll have to plan out the Smith Maneuver Real Estate Investors for Beginners, where you're going to have to come with the beginner questions rather than the intermediate ones. For sure. We would actually need more time to pour into the Smith Maneuver. We'd need well, even just real estate investing, right? Like corporate structures and small business financing, all that. That's your black belt real estate investing stuff, right? So I'll suggest if you're a newer real estate investor and you're listening to this and you're like, what did they just say for an hour? It's not this complicated. We're kind of talking higher level, long-term planning stuff that realistically professionals handle. And you spend 15 minutes talking about your goals, your why, your wants, and they come back with, okay, we're going to do it this way, this way, this way. And they're going to give you a couple simple decisions. So please don't be discouraged. Yeah. Great way to finish the podcast. Appreciate it, man. It's been a pleasure. Hey, thank you. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Peckford. I'm an investment-focused real estate agent in Calgary, Alberta. I'm also an entrepreneur, Red Seal electrician, and I hold a Master Home Inspection Certification. If you're thinking about investing in the Calgary area, please reach out and let me put my real estate expertise to work for you. I can be reached at 587-893-2272. Follow me on Instagram at PeckfordCorey, or my website is CoreyPeckford.com. Plus, we have a Facebook group. It's Calgary Real Estate Investing Group, so Craig for short. Please follow that. If you're getting great value from this podcast, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. That would be greatly appreciated. Thanks. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.